If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 51, and as you do that, I'm going to grab something to use later. Um, Isaiah 51, and we'll be in verses 17 of chapter 51 through chapter 52, uh, verse 12. If you know Isaiah, then you probably know Isaiah 53, which is where we will be next Sunday. But these are, So these are the verses leading up to that famous chapter. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria is frustrated, really frustrated. He's frustrated because every time he tries to attack Israel, uh, they evade his grasp. It's like they know where he is going to be before he even gets there, because they do. Uh, Elisha, the, the prophet, was consistently and miraculously warning the king of Israel about where the Syrian army would be. One of the king of Syria's servants put it this way. He said to the king, Elisha tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. <laughs> Elisha had the king's bedroom tapped as it were. He knew everything that he was thinking and what he was, the next move he was going to make. So the king of Syria decides to cut off this problem at its source and he sends an entire army against Elisha. 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17 says this, when the servant of the man of God, the, the servant of Elisha, got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. For the servant who could not see the Lord's army, there was reason to be afraid. But once his eyes are open to what the Lord is doing, fear flees. As we've considered the, the people of Judah in exile in these chapters, we have seen how dejected they are, their, their feelings of being forsaken and abandoned and, and beyond hope. But the Lord has been seeking to open their eyes, to open their eyes as he asks them to open their ears so that they can hear everything that he is doing and all that he is for them. Last week, after hearing some of these things that the Lord would do, you remember they called out for the Lord to wake up like the disciples coming to Jesus, you remember, in the boat, uh, Israel was saying to the Lord, Lord, wake up, we are drowning, do everything, do all these things that you keep promising that you're going to do, would you actually do them, please? Which is a very bold command to give to the Lord, isn't it? But it's also one that the Lord graciously hears from us as we struggle to understand his ways and struggle to grasp his, uh, his apparent absence. But Isaiah 51 and 52 help us see that actually it's not the Lord who needs to wake up. It's us. It's we as his people who need to wake up. Israel and all who are God's people by faith need to wake up to the work that he is doing and the work that he will do. We need to wake up from our spiritual lethargy and move in active faith towards holiness and towards purity and towards walking in the ways that the Lord calls us to. So this is what God's word says, says to us today. It says, Wake up to God's amazing grace and leave behind all uncleanness. 
wake up to all of God's, wake up to God's amazing grace and leave behind all uncleanness. Like Elisha's servant, we need the Lord to open our eyes to see who he is and see all that he is doing in this world and for we who are his. And when we see the army of the Lord encamped around us, when we see the, the strength of the Lord's arm working for our good, then our faith is awakened to walk in the ways of the Lord that he's called us to to depart from uncleanness, to walk instead in the light of the Lord. As we saw back in chapter 49, we, we need both the gentle and encouraging word of the Lord, but sometimes we also need his loving rebuke. We need him to say to us, wake up. Wake up to God's amazing grace and leave behind all uncleanness. Well, our, our, our passage for today, Isaiah 51, 17 through 52, 12, has three key commands uh, wake yourself, wake yourself is in 51.17. Awake, awake is in 52.1. These are double commands. And then one more double command. It's depart, depart in chapter 52, verse 11. And so that's how we're going to walk through this passage based on those, those three commands. But uh, as I read this chap- these, these verses, uh, take note of those, those commands. So Isaiah 51, beginning in verse 17, this is what God's word says. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says, the Lord, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your backs like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. 
Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed, Israel. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Wake up to God's amazing grace and leave behind all uncleanness. The first command in 51, 17 through 23 says to God's people, wake up to the removal of God's wrath. Wake up to the removal of God's wrath. However, before we see the, the removal of God's wrath, God's wrath is actually described in verses 17 through 20. God's wrath is described. The, the, the imagery here is of a cup full of, of the wrath of God against the sins that sinful individuals and nations must drink. You might picture a cup. I've got some if you're not sure what a cup looks like. <laughs> you might picture a, a cup filled to the brim. Maybe even if you want to picture a cup of wrath that might be smoking or bubbling in fury. It's not a cup that you would pick up and want to drink. But Israel knows this cup because they've been drinking from it in the exile. And it's caused them to stagger. It's caused them to, to faint. And God is, is very honest about their situation. He doesn't belittle their experience, but he, rather he recognizes that this cup has meant the loss of many things for them. Verse 18 speaks of the loss of guidance. Uh, the picture is almost like of an elderly parent with no children left to lend a hand. And Israel has, has no one to guide her. No guidance left. She is lost. Verse 19 describes the loss of goodness. Loss of guidance and now the loss of goodness. The, the words devastation and destruction point to the, the loss of property and possession. The loss of Jerusalem. The loss of all of their, their land. Think about it. The loss of their houses. The loss of their farms. And then the next two words, famine and sword, think about the ways that the people have suffered under God's judgment. Physical pain in exile. The image of Job comes to mind. You remember Job lost all of his property, all of his possessions, and then he lost his health too, all in, in one day. God's people knew what it was to, to lay in the dust and to feel the, the loss of everything. Many people in our world know that feeling of loss of guidance and loss of goodness. And that all leads to, to verse 20, the inevitable loss of hope. They are hopeless. Sons are again spoken of, and, and sons represent uh, the hope for Israel's future. But the sons are all fainting in the streets. We're told that they're like a, a trapped antelope, an antelope in a, in a net. I've never seen that. I've never seen an antelope trapped in a net, but you can imagine what it would look like. You can imagine this helpless, devastating picture of a, an antelope trapped in a net. And as Israel looks at themselves, and they look at their future, they feel no hope of rescue. They feel like they are doomed. Have you ever felt like Judah? Like you have no guidance? Like goodness has fled and there's no hope left in the world? Like God is either against you or he's just completely absent from you? 
God's righteous wrath and fury against our sin brings the desolation that's described here. It brings no guidance. It brings no goodness. It brings no hope into our hearts. And we've all felt these things as a result of our sin. And we know that rebellion against God, it only brings pain and difficulty in our lives. And we know even too that just the general sin of this world means that all of these things come into our lives. We feel lost in this world. We feel like there's nothing good left and we lose all hope sometimes. Those who are far from God feel this struggle as well, no matter how much they might spin it or no matter how many filters they put on their Instagram photos or no matter how happy they say they are, we all feel the weight of the wrath of God looming because apart from God, we all hold this cup of the wrath of God up to our lips and just to sip from it would cause us to stagger. And if we have to drink it all, if we have to drink it down to the dregs, as it says here, we will be eternally consumed In the midst of that description of the wrath of God, there's two questions in verse 19. They seem out of place, but they're hopeful. It's the question, who will console God's people? And who will comfort them as they're experiencing all of God's wrath? Who will console us? Who will comfort us? Verses 21 through 23 give us the answer, and the answer is God. God, the one who is pouring out his wrath, is also the one that will comfort and console his people because in these verses, God's wrath is removed and redirected. Verses 21 through 23, God's wrath is removed and redirected. Isaiah calls God's people to hear the Lord because he has a word for his people who are afflicted and drunk with pain. Pain of their own making, yes, but but pain nonetheless. And before he speaks, notice how the Lord is introduced with four parallel titles in in verse 22. Thus says, your Lord, your God, at the beginning, those two different stanzas, your Lord and and your God, we're we're reminded of the, the personal relationship that God has with his people. Remember those words of verse 16, where God says, you are my people. And here we're reminded that, that we are, that, that he is our God. He is my God. And then it said, he is said to be the all caps L-O-R-D, Lord, the one who pleads the cause of his people. This is, uh, he's not just a personal God, but he's a God who's made a covenant, who's made a promise with his people. He has promised to bless them, to save them, to defend them, and to plead their cause. He has poured out his wrath on them for their sins, but he will not stay angry at them forever because we are told he is going to take this cup from them He's going to cause their enemies to drink it instead. But how will God do this? God is a just God, and in his justice, how can he remove the judgment for Israel's sin from them? Will there be some eternal back and forth between God's people and their enemies drinking the the cup of his wrath? Can there ever be an end to this threat of God's wrath on our lives? Well, we know that the answer comes in the full picture of God's salvation that's seen in Jesus. And there we find that we have a choice, a choice that I've tried to represent with these two little cups up here. We have a choice. We can drink the cup of God's wrath for all eternity on our own, or we can have Jesus drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. The miracle that Jesus and the New Testament Testament make clear to us is that God has removed his wrath from his people by redirecting it, by redirecting it upon himself. 
by becoming our replacement. God himself in Christ drinks to the dregs the cup of his own wrath and is killed by it. Isaiah has tipped his hand in the three previous servant songs and he's going to show all of his cards in the fourth song that we'll consider next week. But for now, let's simply say that Jesus has felt the full force of the wrath of God in his life and in his death. All that Israel experienced, Jesus experienced. Jesus experienced being forsaken by the Lord and sensing the removal of his guiding and comforting hand. It began in the garden when he asked for the cup to pass from him, but then he set his face like flint to go to the cross and to drink it all for his children. Jesus knew the loss of property and possessions. He was one who had nowhere to lay his head. He's one who died without a piece of clothing even to his name. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He knew the sting of hunger. He knew the the sting of violence toward himself and towards those that he loved. Jesus, the hope of the world, we could envision him trapped like an antelope by the powers of darkness and sin. A trap that he willingly walked into. Jesus, like verse 23 says, was laid in the dust and his back was made like a street that the wicked passed over. And through all that Jesus experienced, God has removed his wrath from his people by redirecting it upon his son who becomes our replacement by suffering and dying for us. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And when we trust in him, we find that the cup is empty, that our debt is paid in full and we are forgiven. This is how God can save those who who trust in him. But for those who continue to reject him, the cup of the wrath of God will instead be poured out on them. It will be given to them as it's talked about here. God will give his enemies the cup of his wrath to drink. Revelation 16 picks up this imagery. It describes seven bowls of wrath, seven cups of of wrath that are poured out on the earth. And of the seventh and the final bowl, John writes these chilling words in Revelation 16, 17 through 21. It says, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out from the, of the temple, from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And listen to this. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Remember that these words in Isaiah refer to the judgment that would come on Babylon through the Persians but also that Babylon throughout the scriptures represents all worldly power and pride. It stands for for all the self-made and self-assured men and women of every age and for all of the cities that would set themselves up and pridefully seek a name for themselves and not for the Lord. All who remain in their pride and refuse to bow in repentance and faith at the feet of Jesus, who drink the cup of God's wrath, they rep- that's what Babylon represents. 
And so as we think about this picture of the, 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 of the cups of God's wrath, just a couple, or it, it gives us this image that the, the gospel, I just want to say I'm glad we got all these big lights on. We would be in the dark right now. <laughs> uh, that we remember that in the, the gospel, the, the gospel holds forth two cups for us. There's, there's a choice. That's what these, these are. I've got a fly coming up here on my cups. <laughs> uh, there's, there's one cup that's full. That fly wants it. He's in trouble because this is the cup that represents God's wrath. It's, it's full to the brim, right? Um, if, if you want to drink from this cup, then, then you remain in your own, um, you're, you're trusting in your own goodness, your own strength, your own intelligence. And, and if that's what we're hoping in, then this is the cup we drink from. We drink every last drop of it, of God's wrath for all eternity. What's in the other cup? Nothing. Because Jesus has, has drank it all. <laughs> He's, he's taken all of God's wrath for us on, his, on, on our behalf. He has, in the cross, in his death, he has taken the wrath of God for us so that we do not have to drink it. And in fact, as you think about it further, if you want to press the illustration a little bit more, is the cup empty? The cup isn't empty. He has, he has taken the wrath of God for us, but then he fills it. And we could fill it, we could say it's filled with living water. Jesus Christ is the living water that, that, that blesses us and gives us new life. Or we could go to John 6 and we could go to the Lord's Supper and we could say that he's filled it with his blood. The blood of the new covenant that cleanses us from sin. And so there's a choice. <laughs> there's a choice that we have. Do you want to drink the cup of God's wrath yourself? You want to trust that Jesus, trust in Christ through repentance and faith. Know that that Jesus has drank it on your behalf, and instead of death and judgment, He offers us life and peace and hope, living water. He offers us His very blood to bring our forgiveness. Well, as we look at the judgment our sin deserves, and we see that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, drank it all for us. God's word calls us to wake up to the removal of God's wrath that God has removed his wrath from us in, in Christ. And then in Isaiah 52, 1 through 10, we are to wake up to the love of God. Wake up to the love of God. Uh, the simple summary, I would say, of verses 1 through 6 of chapter 52 is that, is that God's people feel worthless and the, the Lord is seeking to tell them that they are priceless to him. Barry Webb says that God's people are described as being defiled, enslaved, sold, oppressed, and mocked. Judah was sold for nothing, verse 3. They were taken away for nothing, verse 5, and treated as nothing by all of their enemies, such that they start to feel like they are worth less than nothing. You ever feel worthless? You ever feel like nothing? We get caught in a mental spiral that leads to a dark dungeon of believing that you are insignificant and useless. I have. <laughs> if you haven't, I have. I was there for about three days this past week. And Israel sat in that dungeon for years. And if you've ever sat in that pit, you know how hard it is to get out. 
But God is so tender with his people. And he speaks the truth of who they are to him and what he's going to do for them to draw them towards himself. He tells them that despite how bad things look, there is genuine hope for restoration. And that that hope is not rooted in them. It's rooted in the truth that God is going to redeem his people and that he is going to reign over the whole world. Verses one through six emphasize that our God redeems. Our God redeems. And I think the metaphors seem to be mixed as we think about redemption. A mixture of redeeming one who was enslaved and also of redeeming a bride, similar to what we see in the stories of Ruth and Hosea, though those are very different stories. Still, redemption is, is key. Redemption has to do with, with buying back. And Israel, sold to Babylon for nothing, would be redeemed for nothing. It's hard to know exactly what this means. It could mean that the Lord would deliver them without giving Babylon anything for their freedom. Or it could mean that his people are priceless to him. I like that latter one because the Lord seems to be infusing his people with worth in these verses. Worth that he gives them. That they are in verse one to put on beautiful garments. They felt like they were in rags and God says, no, wake up to the fact that there are beautiful garments. These could be wedding clothes. It could be priestly garments that they are to put on to be this nation of priests that they were always intended to be. In verse two, they're seated in a place of honor. And in verse six, they are told the name of the Lord, the loving covenant keeping name of God that they are to remember. When you start to think about this, this kind of redemption for Israel, this kind of redemption for us, it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? Imagine Israel, 70 years in exile, and now God says, I'm going to redeem you. It's like a fairy tale. We're trapped in the tower with no hope of escape, but the king sends his son to kill the dragon and to rescue us, to make us his own. Or maybe we're a poor beggar, barely surviving on the streets, only to find out that we look a whole lot like the future king of that kingdom. And through a series of events, we end up as his friend and we're blessed with all the wealth of that kingdom. Any rags to riches story you can, you can think of, but but one that's infused with the love of the Father for us and the power of the Father to change us and to make us his own. God has come to redeem us from slavery. God has come to to make us his own, to make us his people. We are not worthless. We are priceless and purchased at a great cost. We're loved by the Father. The good news, though, is not only that our God redeems, but also that our God reigns. I love that in verse 7. He says to Zion, your God reigns. These verses in some way, if you go through them, I encourage you to meditate on verses seven through 10 and try to make connections from what we've been seeing beforehand because it seems to be a summary of everything that God has said he's going to do. The theme of comforting his people is mentioned in verse nine, along with redemption and and the arm of the Lord is bared in verse 10. We've been waiting for the arm of the Lord to, to work and so that all the nations would see his strength. And all of this is said to be in the past tense. It's something that the Lord has done. The good news brought into the city in verse seven then is the news that our God reigns, that our pain has passed and our redemption has come and the whole world has seen it. 
And in the coming of Jesus, there is a sense in which that's true, but there's also this sense in which we are waiting for this good news to come in its fullness. Yes, our God reigns, but we're also waiting for him to reign completely. Just as we're waiting for the the fullness of our comfort, the fullness of our redemption, the fullness of the strength of the arm of the Lord. But if this is all so sure that it's as if it already happened, it's past tense. The news has already come into the city. And we are able to rejoice now, even even now in the darkness of the world and in the darkness of those feelings of being worthless or forsaken or lost, the Lord reigns and the Lord loves us. So wake up, wake up to the love of God. Stop sitting in that dungeon thinking that, that we are worthless because God has come and purchased us and made us his own. Wake up to the love of God. We're to wake up to the removal of God's wrath and to the reality of his love. And this all leads us to these final commands, in ver- this final command in verses 11 and 12. And it's the command to depart. Depart from darkness. Depart from darkness. The truth of who God is to us and what he has done for us is something that we receive by faith. But that faith is active. It's not passive. It's a faith that moves in grateful obedience away from the darkness and into the light of the Lord. Go back to our fairy tales. Rapunzel doesn't stay in the tower. She leaves. She gets out of that place and lives in the love of the one who rescued her. The pauper doesn't stay in the dirty streets, but he resides in the castle with gratitude towards the prince who has now become the king. We don't continue, if we're saved, we don't continue to live as if God is always angry with us. We don't continue to live as slaves to the world or slaves to our passions. We live as dearly loved children and as citizens of God's kingdom. We are different. Our faith is active. Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath for us. He has redeemed us. He has clothed us in his righteousness. He has comforted us. And now he calls us to follow him, to leave the darkness and walk in the light. These these verses, verses 11 and 12, they certainly represent the fleeing of, of the Israelites from physical Babylon. God's people, after 70 years in exile, they, they left. The call to return to Jerusalem is here, and, and, and they're to take none of the unclean idols of the land with them. That lack of haste, that lack of hurry in, in verse 12 points towards the fact that Cyrus is the one that God's going to use to deliver them. They don't have to run away. They're going to be sent uh, away by Cyrus. It's not going to be a, a, an escape It's going to be uh, something that the Lord is blessing them as they go. So all of that is there. But these verses also point us to this life of holy discipleship that all of God's children are called to. They remind us that if we've been shown the love of God at the cost of the life of his son, then we can't stay in Babylon. We can't stay in our filth. We can't stay in our rebellion to God. This is why Paul quotes this passage in 2 Corinthians 6 that, that Jordan read, as he calls his people to complete faithfulness to the Lord, to not mixing faith in Christ with idolatry or, or worldliness, to not yoking ourselves, connecting ourselves to those that are walking away from the Lord. Instead, we are to be his bride, committed to him and him only. We are to be his children. We are called to a purity that reflects everything that he has done for us. 
this, this commitment and this purity, they're not payback for salvation. This is not some way to show that we deserve God's love. Rather, holiness and purity of life, they are the overflow of genuine faith and love for Christ. Because other than devotion to this Savior who has died for us, who has redeemed us, who has taken the cup of God's wrath for us, other than devotion to him, what other option do you have? Would we take the cup of salvation that God has purchased for us at the cost of his life and then turn our back on him? Is that true saving faith? A faith that has no love and no faithfulness towards Jesus? Is that the kind of faith that we're called to? Would we accept God's comfort and then go look for comfort in the idols of money and sex and power? Does that make any sense? Would we allow God to redeem us as his bride and then commit adultery with every other lover that we could come in contact with? Would we let him free us from slavery and then choose to enslave ourselves again to our sins and passions? Would we come to know the deep love of God in Christ and then live with disregard for our neighbor and choose instead selfishness and judgmentalism and hatred and anger? No. No, get rid of any kind of thoughts about living that way, that, 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 that saving faith is something that doesn't change you. Brothers and sisters, the Lord says to us with soberness and with joy, depart, depart from Babylon. Come out of your pride and, and your self-sufficiency. Come out of your love for the world and your love of its ways. Come to Jesus, come to the one who drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf and offers you a cup of life and a cup of joy. Come to Jesus who loves you and has redeemed you with his blood to be a spotless bride, to be completely, a completely free child of God. Purify yourself. Purify yourself so that you might put on the priestly garments and live as God's representatives and image bearers in this world. Walk in holiness so that you can be a herald of the good news of salvation to those that are still under God's wrath. This is a, a strong call to depart, to depart, to come out of the world that offers us false protection and false joy and false satisfaction and instead to walk in the way of the Lord. And to do it knowing, as he says here, that he's going to go before us and he's going to be our rear guard. That it's not something that he's calling us to do in our own strength. No, it's something that he's going to lead us in and he's going to follow us up with. That the only reason we can do it is because of the cup of the new covenant that he's given us. Because of the spirit that he's given to dwell within us. Nothing can ultimately harm us and nothing can ultimately take us away from him. And so, in the light of all of these, these wake-up calls, it's, it's a wake-up call to see what God has done for us, but then also a wake-up call that says, depart, walk in the ways that God has called you to. Don't stay in Babylon if he's freed you from it. So let me close by just saying, wake up, children of God. Wake up to this. The wrath of God has been removed from you. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Our God redeems and our God reigns in this world. So therefore, depart. Depart from Babylon and walk instead in the joy of the narrow path that leads to life. 
Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. And then I will pray. Oh, Father, what wondrous love you have shown us in Christ. If we could just grasp it a little bit more deeply today and then every other day, Lord, would you help us by your Spirit to know the love of God in Christ Jesus? Lord, we've heard so many times that you have taken the wrath of God on our behalf. Lord, help us to to know it in our souls, that it would change us. That we've been told so often that you love us, help us to know it deeply, that you do love us, that we are priceless to you, that you have redeemed us and you are reigning and you call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, that your ways are for our good, that you're calling us away from slavery, you're calling us away from exile, you're calling us into all of your goodness and you go before us and you go behind us. So Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for um, running back into Babylon, for being like Lot's wife and turning around and longing for the things that you have freed us from. Help us to flee and to run to the life that you offer us in Christ and in walking in his ways. Lord, we can't do it on our own, so we ask for your spirit to strengthen us to do that. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.